shit, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. People don't hear us start laughing and be like, what are they doing? <laughs> oh, you know, Riz back for episode six. Yeah, well, you know, whatever. Whatever. Six? Yep, back for episode six. What was I be keeping track, I think? Yeah. I don't know. We just do this for fun at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's so, always fun. It's always fun. So, today, before we get into our current events, I'd like to introduce our guest. I said guest. Hi, guest. How are you? You good? I'd like to introduce our guest. Our guest today is the professor and chair of African American Studies. Dr. Theodore Regina Berry earned her BA in Communications from Slippery Rock University and a master's in education and inter- interdisciplinary studies in curriculum and instruction an education specialist degree in leadership and curriculum and teaching, an education doctorate in curriculum and social inquiry, all from National Lewis University. Upon completion of her terminal degree, Theodore Barry completed a three-year postdoc, postdoctoral research fellowship at the University of Illinois at Chicago, awarded by the American Educational Research Association. Dr. Barry, a pioneer scholar on critical race feminism in the context of education, centers her work in critical race theory, critical race feminism, curriculum studies, curriculum theory, and qualitative research methodology, autoethnography, and narrative, and engages in scholarship with a focus on the lived experiences of Black women as pre-service teachers and teachers, teacher educators, and critical examination of race, ethnicity, and gender for teaching and teacher education. God, that was an awful. Welcome, Dr. Barry. <sighs> Good afternoon. First of all, I'm going to make a slight correction. So I earned my Bachelor of Arts degree um, from Slippery Rock University um, in communications with a and, and a double major in music arts with a double minor in, <laughs> in biology and physics. Wow. I'm a geeky kid. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. If you ever had one of her classes, it, it would kind of go without saying. The way she's excited about research and other things. She's like doing like a little jig in her chair and whatnot. It's actually really cool. Um, it's funny as hell. <laughs> so... Before we get into our interview, we're going to go into our current events. And so for the last couple of episodes, we've been talking about the situation in the African American Studies Department. Um, per usual, if you want to help out or anything, please stop by the space. Come hang out with us. We're a hoot. We're a riot. You need to help us decorate a couple things, you know. Your presence does more than you think it does. Because we are, in fact... A family and we welcome any and almost everyone who's not you know there, there, there are some kids there are some conditions this is not like unconditional enrollment there, there are some conditions here you just can't make it look bad if you make it look bad we just kind of like you know talk to you sternly behind a closed door with very nice words <laughs> um, so what's been going on recently Well, we record these about once every two weeks, which means that in between the last time and this time, 
I know the big thing that's been on the news has been an impeachment. I don't know if we want to go there, but that's definitely been what the current events have been. I've learned about the impeachment via The Daily Show, and so I get the more entertaining version of the story. Sure. But, like, overall, we're still having the same conversation in this country about privilege, power dynamics, and people's willingness to acquire knowledge to even understand fundamentally how any of these systems even work. Yeah. And there's definitely, as it pertains to the things that we have talked about in this podcast, there's definitely an element that is prevalent in this administration. Um, Although it's, I mean, it's always been there, so it's not like it's new. But in this administration in particular, that is just masculinity spilling all over the place, right? And we have a person who's in charge who, because of some construct of masculinity that he has in his head, can't admit when he's wrong, can't admit when he doesn't know something, can't admit when he might be on the wrong side of something. And so we'll just bluster forward and say, no, you're wrong. It's been, I mean, it's been three years now of consistent power abuse, gaslighting, um, all the things that, that men do when they have power that's disruptive and abusive. And, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I mean, I still remember in 2016, um, when I was working with masculinity stuff a lot more in depth, in depthly, um, and working on my thesis for my master's degree, um, and the presidential election happened. And I remember thinking, or, um, tweeting out, um, you know, remember in 2016 when we had a female candidate who was the most qualified candidate that we've ever had, regardless of her feelings of her, most qualified candidate we've ever had for president. And she went up against a guy whose only qualification to being president is one, wealthy, and two, was a television, known television star. And uh, people questioned her credentials over his. That's toxic masculinity right there, right? Like, that's patriarchy right there. Um and and i think we've been we've been saturated by the presidential administration of patriarchy these past 3 years and like never i mean it's always been there again don't get me wrong it's not like it's new but it's been more apparent now than it has been with almost any other president in the last you know 20 years 40 years right like certainly in the modern era right everything post uh, fdr I mean, I was tempted to say that Bill Clinton gave him a run for his money, but the dude got BJ in the Oval Office. <laughs> Donald Trump walks out and he's like, let me read to you this transcript. Yeah. And it says, you ready? You watching? <laughs> no pro quo. Pro quo. And you're like, I'm pretty sure there was somebody who testified under oath who just said right. that there was definitely something that you said that was that. Mm-hmm. Like, how does that yeah. and it's and it's bled over to the things that we we do for a profession right that you we study we work in we have an an administration who discounts research who discounts data who no matter how much factual information you put in front of them 
will turn around and tell you you're wrong. And for somebody who works in academia, it's terrifying. Highly problematic. Terrifying. He, his administration essentially put out a list of words that you cannot use in government documents, particularly as it pertains to research. Words that are commonplace in the research world. And said, by the way, these words are no longer valid in our governmental system in relationship to research. And I'm thinking to myself, what clear-minded researcher would accept this as normal? Mm -hmm. Regardless as to what side of the political fence you're on, why in the world would it be okay for you to not include something like data Mm -hmm. (laughs) as part of a conversation in regard to information, Mm -hmm. right? And to just erase all kinds of identities also in relationship to research. Why is it okay to not acknowledge that subjects in a research study um, have identities that align with, with a particular sexual orientation and just erase that from empirical research? That makes the research non-valid. So, yeah, you know, regardless as to what you might think about this particular presidency, there's real trouble when scientists have problems with the ways in which policy is being developed that interferes with their work. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about things like climate change and the fact that you have a sitting president that doesn't know the difference between weather and climate mm-hmm. and is telling the scientists who do work on climate change that they don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. It makes absolutely no sense yeah. at all. It doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. And for for me, too, my background was in English literature. And I, I mean, I love writing. I love reading. And one of the things that I used to really love about U.S. history and the American presidency is that we had presidents who drove the progress of the country through their words alone. Right. And regardless of your feelings of politics or, or, or what they did or, you know, who they were, the words of people like Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, JFK, FDR, their words alone pushed the country to want to accomplish things. And now we have a president in who can't string two sentences together without tripping over his own tongue. Um this this is going to be a dark time when a hundred years from now when folks are going back and studying this time, and you're supposed to pull up transcripts like firsthand information of what was happening at this point. This is going to be a weird time for people. You should be able to tweet better than you speak, right? And, and, and guess what? He doesn't do either well. No. <laughs> <coughs> no, because even to tweet, you have to have a complete sentence. A logical idea that comes across, not just a stream of words that may not have any relationship to one another, mm-hmm. and then you come up like a with a word like kafofe, like yeah. what the hell was right. that? Right. 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 And, and he couldn't tell you what it was. 
and the thing and the thing is about his 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 patriarchy or his masculinity is that he couldn't in the moment tell you oh i just i messed up right like we all mess up like we've all tweeted the wrong thing we've all autocorrected the wrong thing we've all sent a text that made no sense cuz autocorrect fixed a word in it and and this guy somehow can't admit it and and whether it's it was meant to be a joke or not i don't i don't really care drag the nation through a thing of like oh this is there's a secret meeting because behind Cole Fife or whatever <laughs> and then oh like you know and Fox News was all over it like oh what's the secret meaning I was like man like Fox News is like that band of friends your parents warned you about when you were young. <laughs> <laughs> the ones where you'd be like alright I gotta go home I gotta be home by 8 and they're like who are you hanging home? out with <laughs> you'd be home by 8.15 mm Mm-mm, I need to be home by eight. Eight. Mm-hmm. I gotta make this stop real quick. No, no you don't. You can drop me off and go to the stop. The stop is past my house, bro. You, you can drop me off. Now nah, let me go to the stop first, and I just, I just backtrack and come on, man. It's gonna be okay. And then they don't, they don't get to see you get in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. And they want to say something like, "Oh, your parents are super strict," and it's like, no. Yeah. You're not even getting the entire story. Yeah. But that that leads us into the interview itself because we can go on about this shit. For we can. Like yeah. Draw the lines. In your correction, you mentioned double majoring and double minoring. Mm-hmm. Yet you're currently professor and chair of the African American Studies Department. Your credentials say that you know a hell of a lot about theory curriculum, leadership, and education. Mm-hmm. So how did you get where you are now from where you started? Well, the short story is that in every single thing that I have ever done from college and probably shortly before then has always had some relationship to the history, literature, culture, and life of Black people. Mm-hmm. So, for instance... Um, as an undergrad, uh, I started out as a music major only. And I started out as a music major because I wanted to know the relationship between um, the Classica vocal sonata. If you don't know what it is, Google it. <laughs> and and the uh, traditional American Negro spiritual. Mm-hmm. What were the things that these two musical genres had in common? How were they different? And more importantly, in what ways did the traditional American Negro spiritual elevate the notion of the sonatas format, which is an ABA format? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and the ways in which it led, get provided complexity and depth to that particular format. Because... Most uh, um, traditional American Negro spirituals still follow an ABA format, but not in the strictest sense. So they borrow from the sonata in relationship to its initial structure, but then kind of improvise, kind of like almost like a jazz fusion kind of thing going on. Um, And that was because uh, as a middle school and high school student who studied voice, at a traditional music school, but also learning vocal technique through my mother's home church. Uh, 
I was all, I was sort of steeped in sort of both worlds where um, in my mother's home church, we were doing um, hymns and Negro spirituals and some gospel. And then I'm going to music school or I'm in, in, in school and I'm learning um, traditional American music like the Appalachian um, folk songs and um, songs from American musicals and, and that sort of thing. And I'm noticing similarities and differences, but at the same time, uh, having to overcome my own challenges around some of the complexities and depth built into the traditional American Negro spiritual. Um, so I jump into college, really wanting to know more about that. I'm having the good fortune of studying with a guy by the name of Roland Carter, um, who uh, was a Hampton alum and uh, someone who wrote and arranged um, Negro spirituals and, and having studied with him and understanding the ways in which these two styles sort of gave, gave this ebb and flow to one another, um, while at the same time being actively involved with um, student organizations on campus that had Lots of involvement around uh, Black issues. So, you know, here I am in college several years ago, prior to this point. <laughs> um, and oddly enough, dealing with a lot of the same issues that students on the campus here at San Jose State are dealing with, mm -hmm. which is a little disturbing given that I've been out of college for some time as an undergrad and we're still looking at a lot of the same things. Um, but even, um, as I made, finally made the decision to go into my master's program, um, examining issues of equity in the context of edu education, primarily because I'm noticing that, um, my peers who are all college educated folks, um, depending on race have very different experiences in K through 12 school and in college. And noticing that there are similarities that exist um, with Black students in those uh, educational experiences, K-20, um, than non-Black students. Um, and then subsequently decided when, you know, now one of the things I did, I also earned a master's degree in, in uh, social and cultural foundations of education from the University of Oklahoma. That's a whole other story. So, <laughs> um but when I finished my first master's degree, I made the decision that, you know, I really know, need to know more about what black women went through in early American education. And so I had the opportunity to study that while um, earning that particular degree and then um, going on to uh, my ed specialist degree, where now I had the opportunity to lead a group of teachers. I'm living in Germany at the time. So I'm leading a group of teachers in the Department of Defense um, uh, education activity uh, in the Heidelberg district on a diversity initiative. Um, and for us at the time, diversity was mostly about black and white with a few Latino students and a handful of Asian students um, whose parents were somehow affiliated either with the military or the State Department mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how do we do this diversity thing better 
how do we service primarily black students who are having very different experiences than many black students who are going to school um, in the continental United States because their parents are, at least one of their parents are, are educated, have gone to college, um, they're in a different country, they're learning a different language. You know, your average ordinary run-of-the-mill garden variety black kid in a large city isn't having that experience. Yet at the same time, what's, what is the commonality between somebody who is going to school in South LA and somebody who's going to school in Heidelberg is that race is still a factor when they walk into the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I go into my doctoral program with the clear understanding that one of the most significant factors in the life of most students is the teacher. And when students have a black teacher and particularly a black female teacher, things change. So I want to get at what's the experience of those young people, these these young black women who are trying to become teachers. What's their road to, to this degree, to this career? And how is that role look different for them when somebody like myself is their teacher educator versus the, the vast majority of people who are teacher educators, which are white women? Mm-hmm. You know, all of my research, all of the activities I've been involved in, all of the community projects I've been involved in have always involved black people. And as a result of much of the work I did in my early career, by the time I took um, my academic posting at the University of Texas, San Antonio, um, I was asked to lead the African-American studies program on that campus. And not unlike what I witnessed at this campus, that program was struggling to survive. Mm -hmm. So they were like, Dr. Berry, we need you to pull this together. And mm-hmm. make it better. And and that's what I did, you know. And I did that because most of the literature that we read about the history of Black studies, African American studies, Black world studies, Africana studies, tells us that this is a grassroots discipline. Mm-hmm. That it only came into existence because... Students, primarily out here in the Bay Area, but in other parts of the country, demanded to know more about themselves. Mm -hmm. And so my first move in that role, which was also my first move in my current role, was to get connected to the community because the community built this program. Mm -hmm. So in order for the program to survive, the community had to be involved. Now... One of the things that is a challenge is that if you are not from the community and you're trying to get connected to the community, folks are not easily willing to be so trustful. So, you know, I I had to push and push and, and, and probably annoy some people there and here to get heard and say, hey, I'm here. I need you to show up. Mm hmm. And the good news was that in both cases, people showed up. Mm-hmm. Some people took a little bit longer to show up than <laughs> others. You know, they they caught the last bus in right. Right? Right. <laughs> before they had to wait till the next day to get a bus. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And if you live in a city where there's public transportation, you know that that last bus 
might come to that bus stop at like one twenty in the morning. Otherwise, you got to wait till like four thirty for the next right. bus to show up. So, <clears throat> I, I, my, 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 um, my path to African American studies was not your traditional path. I was not one of these people who found my way into an African-American studies program as an undergrad or took a class in in high school or whatever. African-American studies was part of my life, my whole life, Mm -hmm. you know, because there were people who didn't necessarily have a degree in African-American studies, but who were scholars in their own right, who sat right in my household, Mm -hmm. who told me stories about what it meant to be a black immigrant what it meant to be a black person raised in a northern city, spending time in the South and, and, and not and having this cognitive dissonance about their blackness traveling from one space to another. Mm-hmm. What it mean, meant to be a black person in the military and what it meant to be a black person in an integrated school. You know, they had the lived experiences that were wealths of knowledge mm-hmm. that I soaked in every day. You know, my music teachers who knew how to understand the construction of a concerto but could sing gospel, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this was this was my black education and my, my African American studies experience in in a nutshell. But at the same time, as I was evolving into a scholar, I'm reading uh, the work of, of people like Angela Davis and Bell Hooks and Elaine Brown and Melissa Harris Perry and Orgy Lord and June Jordan and, and the list goes on and on and on and really got hooked into the writing of Maya Angelou and Langston Hughes in mm-hmm. middle school and that just sort of sent my trajectory outward. Mm-hmm. Um, so people don't have to and, and I tell my students this, you don't have to come to African-American studies in a traditional way. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to necessarily be a major in order to get to it. But there's there's a wealth of information that gives you a whole different story to the black experience than what we see in our average, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, garden-variety, Twitter feed or <laughs> newscast. Mm-hmm. So... I know it's a long way around the answer to the question, but it's. It, I think it's important for people to understand that my journey could be your journey. Right. You could start out as a psychology major and end up running an African-American studies program. Right. I mean, I, I, I appreciate your story a lot, Dr. Perry. I think it resonates with me because I also don't feel like I had... A, I also don't feel like my journey was was a typical journey I would see my peers do. Um, and part of that is because I feel like I came into social justice a little bit later in my career than some of my peers who started way back when, right? Like they started as student activists in their undergraduate careers and just kept that going. And now it's like I've been an activist for the past 20 years and yada, yada, yada. And I, that wasn't me as an undergraduate. I was a very, like, don't make waves kind of an undergraduate student. Um, but part of that, the reason why, though, is because I was struggling to understand my experience. And I, we shared my experience in an earlier episode. But part of it was a, a, a huge culture shock entering undergraduate um, college and having it not look racially what I was expecting. Um, 
and trying to get my mind around that and trying to figure out what my experience meant in the middle of all that. Um, so I very much appreciate this idea that not only can you come to this work from any angle and at any time, right, but that there's actually some benefit from coming at it from a different angle. Because when you know a lot about a lot of other things, you can make better and more insightful connections about the work you're doing instead of staying so laser focused. Um, and, the, and the idea that you can bring in chemistry, musical theory, you know, pop culture, um, the church, and have that all resonate in, for you, the experience of a black woman. I think resonates deeply with our students because our students are not just students. Our students are also scientists. Our students are also consumers of media. Our students are also working one or two or three or four jobs on the side. Um, our students are also fascinated by everything that goes from pop culture to anime to war games and video games to, you know, the latest music, the latest movies. And so being able to bring all that together and say, you're allowed to like all these things. You don't have to not do these things in order to do the work. And I think that's significantly important for me, even in my teaching. You know, the good news is that having studied curriculum and pedagogy, I'm not afraid to sort of like throw everything into the pot and see what people pick out. Mm -hmm. as the thing that they like the most in the stew, right? So, you know, my father used to make this stew. Then it looked like he just threw everything that was in the refrigerator as leftovers into the pot with with, <laughs> with some stock and then thickened it and whatever. And it's like, oh, wow, what's in there? I don't know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? But if there was something, and, and for me, you know, if there was something I really liked, I ate those parts first and then left right. everything else on the plate, right? right? And my students have a way of sort of learning that way. There are certain students who want to write a paper because mm -hmm. they are most comfortable writing a paper. But there are other students who want to be able to do something a little more creative. They want to do a podcast. They want to do a blog. They want to do... A, a film or a short film presentation. They want to do a digital story. They want to do uh, a presentation. They want to um, integrate um, music or poetry into their work. And even in my own scholarship, I've integrated uh, poetry and short story into the body of the data that's being presented as a means of being able to, to show people that there are multiple ways in which to represent a lived experience. Um, and some students are a little uh, put off by the notion that, wait, she's asking us to do a digital story. I'm not really tech savvy. What am I supposed to do? You figure it out. Everybody's got a phone. It allows you to audio record. It allows you to video record. You find an app. Pull that stuff together, you know, quit, you know, whining, you know, I'm not interested in your bitching and whining and moaning and groaning, get it done, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but at the end of it, one of the things that I'm trying to help students to understand is that all these things that they get the opportunity to do mm -hmm. are useful in real life, mm -hmm. right? You go out for a job interview and you have to 
talk about who you are, if you can do that in a digital story and represent the stuff that you've done in your classrooms in that way, and that story allows you to integrate music and voiceover and video and PowerPoint, folks are going to be like, oh, we want her for that job because she can present something in a way that's going to keep people's attention, right? You've got to be ready to at least be willing to jump into a different experience. And the good news is that African-American studies is an interdisciplinary field that allows for all those things to happen. And so I get to play with all the toys in the sandbox. Yeah. And and they're also they're also tools, mm-hmm. like critical tools for narrative telling, which is one of the core tenets, central tenets of critical race theory, is oh, building absolutely. your own narrative. So telling somebody, look, when I say narrative, I don't always mean a novel or a play or a thing you have to sit in front of a computer and type out. It can be a snap story, it can be an insta story, it can be you know, a TikTok, like mm-hmm. you have, you have so many tools at your disposal to build your narrative. Will Smith is a gem, by the way. If any of y'all have an app TikTok, follow Will Smith. You will thank me later. Okay. <laughs> um, so my next question for you is when did people start referring to you as a scholar? <laughs> um, I asked you this because in conversations I've had with other people, we've arrived at this notion that terms like scholar and, you know, musician and things like that aren't terms people give to themselves. So you can call yourself a scholar, but if you don't actually know what the word means, you're not really a scholar. So when did somebody start calling you a scholar, and then when did you feel like you were actually worth accepting the term itself? My earliest memory of someone referring to me as a scholar um, happened in my first semester in my doctoral program. Um, I went to a conference. It was the American Educational Research Association. It was my very first time going to this conference And I'm there because I'm working with a research team, a group of ethnographers who were doing research in Chicago public schools around the reconstruction, uh, reconstitution of uh, four high schools of all on the south side of Chicago and what the culture of that schooling experience had become as a result of what they were calling reconstitution at the time. And reconstitution in short version is really where the school system makes the decision to basically break down everything that exists in that school, fire all the teachers, administrators, staff, etc., and people, and then rebuild it. People have to reapply for their jobs, um, new principals get assigned, so forth and so on, with the understanding now that when, for each of these people who are reapplying for their jobs, that they are coming in to build something new and better for these students. Now, the problem is that the four schools that were identified to be reconstituted were all, were all schools where the majority of the students were black, were all schools that were low for, uh, poorly resourced in regard to funding, were all schools that were on the south side of Chicago in a large uh, black community, and were also all schools that had had 
uh, a history, a very long, rich history of um, notable black people who had graduated from these high schools. And so really what they were doing was almost stripping the identity from these schools, the history and identities from these schools. And so we go in to do this research and we go to this conference to talk about what we have learned. Now, this was my first time actually being paid to be a researcher. So I get up every day, I travel across town, I go into the school, I'm sitting in classrooms, taking field notes about the interactions between the students and the teachers. I'm sitting in meetings, talking to folks about things like, you know, professional development and individual education plans and all that kind of stuff. And we go to this conference to talk about the things that we've learned in the short time that we've been in these schools. And at the end of our presentation, there's a Q&A session. And one of the first questions that got posed, some guy in the audience um, was asking me about a specific question about something I said in my presentation. And he says to me, when I want to, I got a question for that young woman scholar over there. And I, <laughs> I'm looking around like, you know, who's he talking to? <laughs> and he says, this young woman right here. He's saying, you're a brilliant scholar. Tell me about how you were able to integrate your own um, perceptions and experiences of your own schooling to what you were witnessing in these classrooms and 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 how you were able to then become part of the community um, as you move through this process. And I'm still stuck on scholar. Right. Right? I, I don't think I heard him until he repeated the question. <laughs> right? Because I'm still stuck on the fact that he thinks I actually know some shit. Right? I just showed up and took some notes and told them what I thought. <laughs> and so then I answer his question. And at the end of it, the guy who was the principal investigator for the study, uh, very well-known school reform scholar who passed away a few years ago, uh, G. Alfred Hess, uh, comes up to me <clears throat> and says, oh, wow, you did a great job for your first conference presentation. He said, I think you're ready for um, some more work. We go, we're going to add additional school to your docket. And I looked at him and I did the thing that I always do. You going to give me some more money? <laughs> <laughs> and he says, well, we can talk about it. I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, but accepting this notion of being a scholar was probably more difficult for me. I was just always willing to say, well, this is just the work that I do. Mm-hmm. This is just who I am. I'm not trying to put on some identity that doesn't necessarily fit for me because I had my own notions about scholar. And I have to admit that they were deeply wedded in patriarchy. Mm-hmm. That much the same way that young children, if you say, draw a picture of a scientist, you're going to get somebody that looks like Albert Einstein. I sort of saw this notion of a scholar, of someone who looked much like my boss. You know, old white guy, you know, who had 
tons and tons of bookshelves in mm-hmm. his office with loads and loads of books. And Aaron is laughing because I'm that old white guy. Because <laughs> I've got bookshelves with tons and tons of books. And he and the guy he calls Roger, <laughs> right, come into my office. And I got to watch them like a freaking hawk because they will steal my fucking books. Right? <laughs> I'm like, clarify real quick. I do not plan to steal her books. But you steal them anyway. I think that's Whether you plan to steal them or not, they disappear. They gain feet and walk. I think that's how I first met you, Erin, was you came by Mosaic. You wanted to chat about something. And then when we were done, you just kind of wandered over to the bookshelf and spent the next 20 minutes looking at the bookshelf. And they came back and went, can we check these out? <laughs> I, I, I love these books. It's it's beautiful, but you can't have my books. It'd be like that sometimes. It's not like that ever. <laughs> hey, you know what? I try. I always try. What you were saying. But so um, and I still have a little bit of trouble with this notion of scholar only because it, for me it's it's not as big as people have made it in the past. I see my students as scholars mm-hmm. because we all have the capacity to uh, investigate something, to observe something, to engage in inquiry, and to draw our own conclusions and develop new perceptions and ideas from, from all that we've seen and heard and, and, and understood. Mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of how we then decide to disseminate that information, whether it's through a conversation or in classes or if we write it in a poem or if we write it in a paper. But the difference is in the traditional world of academia that it's about whether or not it gets published someplace that somebody else is going to read it. In a peer-reviewed journal. Peer-reviewed journal. <laughs> right? I don't see how it would be peer-reviewed if the person reviewing it is like a distinguished professor and I'm a low-life right. you know, <laughs> assistant professor. That's not my peer. Right, right? right. But that's a whole other conversation. But nonetheless, you know, yeah, so my, my conceptions around my notion of scholar, yes, I'm probably got to the point of accepting people referring to me as a scholar after I did my first book, which was about, uh, that book came out about six months after I finished my postdoc. Um, because then people were like, hey, you know some shit and we want to know what you know. And right. I was like, cool, I'm willing to share for a price. Right. <laughs> No, but I share anyway. You ain't got to pay me for it most of the time, but you know. Well, um, but and and the idea that that knowledge is valuable, right? right? And, and we, the knowledge is valuable. We have yes. often discounted that and said, you know, oh, you didn't actually work though, right? You just did your thing. It's like, no, no, it's all work. It's all work. It's all work. Yes, yeah. that that is one of the challenges of also of being in academia because the average ordinary person goes to work at a particular time during the day. So they get up sometime in the morning. They report somewhere between 7 and 9 o'clock in the morning, maybe Mm -hmm. 10 if they're lucky. And they finish up somewhere between 4 and 6 in the evening. Mm -hmm. And they're done for the week. And they are producing 
something that they can give to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And in academia, we don't function that way. Mm-hmm. We now, but and but just because our schedule is more flexible doesn't mean we do less work. Right. Right. Let's make that clear. Let's let's be real clear about that. Right. It's right? still labor. It's still labor. So so number one, for instance, when I was an assistant professor, in my very first job, um, I had three classes that I taught three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Mm-hmm. So I teach my three classes, and I'd have office hours. Now I could have. Most people would look at that and say, oh, you work three days a week. Not. Because <laughs> you still have to prep for those classes. Mm-hmm. You still have to grade papers for those classes. You still have to sit down and talk to students about the work in those classes. And then you still have to go to meetings mm-hmm. in relationship to all the business that the unit does, whether it's your department or the school, college, whatever. Right, and you still have to do scholarship, which means that you have to read, mm-hmm. you have to research, collect data, analyze that data, write it up, all of that sort of thing. So, there were many weeks that I might have actually been doing work six, seven days a mm-hmm. week, and oftentimes putting in somewhere closer to 50, 60 hours a week. They just didn't look like the the 40 hours that somebody else put in because their work happens within a particular time frame, mm-hmm. right? So that's the challenge, right? People have a hard time wrapping their brains around that. And then, you know, as you move through your academic career, you find that there are more committees mm-hmm. and more students and more meetings, <clears throat> and then there are more demands, right? So after you get tenure, Ideally, you want to become a full professor, which means that you have to elevate your game in relationship to your publications. You can't publish in the same places and write about the same things and get promoted. You have to show that you can do a little bit more and engage in some form of leadership, right? Which requires more work. Right. And then once you hit a certain level of scholarship, then a whole new world opens where you're invited to things oh man asked to speak at things oh man asked to contribute to things oh yeah you have to write intros and write reviews <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's and 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 all of that stuff is because because we have so many people in this field who would give their right leg for that none of that stuff we're allowed to show any sort of anything except gratitude for <laughs> you know that's I mean? funny you know what i mean because i'm very clear about the fact that if i'm doing this work it gets counted for something and i advise people on a regular basis make sure everything you do counts for something that's rule number one mm-hmm. rule number two make sure everything you do can count twice Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yes. So, the same thing more than once. Right. So, for instance, um, today I had to. I had a. This was a deadline that I had to submit an external review. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's one of the other things that you get asked to do often as a full professor. People go up for tenure, or people go up for promotion to full professor. Other institutions will 
contact you because, you know, somehow they get your name from somewhere in the ether space, mm-hmm. right? Because you're hey, known. You're known now. Yeah, yeah. You got okay. a certain level of uh, notoriety. Right. You're not nobody no more. So I get this letter from the institution about a month ago saying, hey, we'd like for you to do the external review on assistant professor so-and-so who's going up for tenure and promotion at Institution X. And then they send you all that person's files. And you have to read their CV, their narrative letter, their um, uh, uh, their manuscripts of, sample manuscripts of journal articles that they've written, sample chapters of books that they've written, all of that. So you got to read all this shit. Right. Mm-hmm. And and then you've got to be able to write up something that succinctly identifies how well this person has performed in the context of where they work. So that means you also have to do homework on that institution. Mm-hmm. Is it a teaching institution? Is it a research institution? You know, how what's the course load? Do these people teach three three classes a semester, four classes a semester, less than that? You know, are they involved in professional organizations? Mm-hmm. All of this stuff. And then you gotta write this letter. So I had to write this letter. And I decided, hmm, I might as well make this work for me twice. And figure out a way that I can take all this information that I now know about this person who I didn't know at all Mm -hmm. and be able to say, okay, what do people who who do this kind of work have to contribute to what I do? Mm -hmm. So I'm now working on this piece that looks at his work and the work of other people like him because he also, when you look at his CV, you can tell all the folks that he's worked with who do similar work, so he did all the work for me. Right, right. right. <laughs> and now I can say, people who do work in this area contribute to African American studies and specifically critical race theory in these ways. New journal article, done. Wow. Wrote my letter. Wow. To pieces of my letter to put in my introduction. <laughs> Hey, I no, follow but, my own rules. But I, I, I very much appreciate that because the perspective I was talking from is very much a colonized perspective, right? When, when, when we come at it, particularly as scholars of color, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in your case, particularly as a woman as well, you're told that you have to be humble. You're told you have to be grateful. You're told that you don't measure up to the Albert Einstein looking whatever that you were talking about earlier. And and so, you know, you don't want to get uppity. You don't want to get out of, out of, you know, pocket. You don't want to, you know, make waves in a situation where you can't control it. And so you don't, you don't push back, you know, and that's a very colonized perspective. Now, the good news is that I wasn't ever raised that way. <laughs> you know, my parents were very clear about the fact that we were expected to be exceptional. That was the norm. That's so that's number 1. And number 2, that we were to value our worth. That not to let anybody tell us what we couldn't do. Mm. And so 
I get annoyed when people try to tell me, well, you know, that's not what you're supposed to do right now. Who told you you could tell me what I can do right now? Go sit down somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right? Short story. I'm I'm a postdoc. Mm-hmm. I go to this one, and, and every so often, the, the group of us postdocs would meet, and in our meetings, we would have these big name scholars who would come in and grace us with their presence and tell us what they thought. Yeah. So this, and so at this particular meeting, short meeting, we had like these four big name scholars in the room and they just wanted to know who we were. Mm -hmm. So each of us go around the room and talk and say, hi, my name is so-and-so. I graduated from X university. I'm doing my postdoc with X person at X institution. And my research is about blah, blah, blah. And I'm working on A, B, and C right now. Mm-hmm. So when I get up to do mine, I say, hi, I am Theodora Regina Berry, postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Illinois at Chicago, working with doctors, William Ayers and William Watkins, right? So I'm the only postdoc who has two mentors. Okay. Right? Because I'm special. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I graduated from National Lewis University, and I'm currently working on my first book, um, which will be an edited volume that talks about the experiences of women of color as academics at three stages of the academic career. Mm -hmm. And I'm working on a manuscript based on my dissertation. One of these big name scholars has the audacity to immediately get up after I introduce myself, not even letting the next person go and introduce herself, and says, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You should be collecting data right now. Why are you working on a book right now? And I mean, in front of a room full of people. And I'm like, excuse me. But if there was a problem with my writing a book right now, my two mentors would have told me something different. That's number one. Number two, who the hell are you? Right. (laughs) Right? Right. And you could have heard a pin drop in the room. Because people are like, oh my God, she just told off so-and-so. I can't believe she said that to her. Blah, blah, blah. (coughs) Without paying attention to the fact that this woman, regardless of how stellar she is in the field... Tried to cut me down. Mm-hmm. It was, I was supposed to stay in my place. She had every right to do whatever. And I'm like, no, that's not how this kid was raised. Mm-hmm. My mother would have shot you for that. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My daddy would have cut you. My mother would have shot you. Right? <laughs> you know? So, I'm, 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 oh, I'm living in my notion of scholar, but I see it now in this stage of my career as mentor. That my responsibility in my work is to guide the way and not to be in the way Mm -hmm. and to let people grow into who they are, but to assist in that. Mm. All right. So I have to justify that trash comment that I made earlier because I know some of my authors be like, I know he did not just call a black woman trash. Like this this is my esteemed mentor and we do this shit every day. Like I will walk past her office and we'll chuckle with one another and then she'll say something like, you are so trash. And she's like, yeah, and so are you. And I'm like, that's at least, you know, game or nice game. We both look familiar right now. Mm-hmm. So I have three more questions for you. Okay. The first of which 
is as a black woman academic, how has your experience in the academy been navigating around institutions built on patriarchy and the systemic oppression? Of- so the short answer for that is it sucks. Mm-hmm. Plain and simple. I honestly thought, I remember being in elementary school. I went to John B. Kelly Lower School, they call it. (laughs) Lower School. In Germantown, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Named for the great Olympic athlete, John B. Kelly Jr., the Olympic rower. (laughs) (laughs) Who only got famous because his sister became Princess Grace. (laughs) Right? There we go. Right? Nobody knew who the hell he was, and they didn't know. And people outside of Philadelphia didn't know what it meant to be on a crew team. Right. Right? Um, And when I was, I remember being in fourth grade thinking, this is great. We got all kinds of people going to school with one another. Because we had just learned about all the funky segregation that happened in the South. right? Right, right. So I'm going to school. And there are white people, there are black people, there are Asian people, there are Latinos, there are all kinds of folks in my school. We all get along, we all play on the street together, all this stuff. And I'm thinking, we're not going to ever have to look at anything like this racism stuff ever again in life. (laughs) This is great. My world is going to be much better than everybody else's. Man, what it pays to be young. (laughs) Stupid. (laughs) Because here we are now and patriarchy, racism, sexism, elitism, ableism, homophobia, Running rampant on the land Mm -hmm. like a scourge. Mm -hmm. Eating up everything in the process. Greedy little heifers. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. But, because I remember thinking when I was in my master's program and I'm talking about equity, I'm I'm like, hmm, I'd really like to build my career on this. Mm -hmm. But I have a feeling that I'm not going to have much of a career if I choose equity as as my research topic because we're already talking about it and I'm just starting my master's program. They're going to wipe this shit out in a minute, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, That's funny. Yeah, that's funny, right? So, so, So it sucks because, you know, 20 years ago, I really thought we would be so much further and that there would be no questions about whether or not, you know, a woman can be president of the United States. There would be no mm-hmm. questions and uh, questioning whether or not a woman who is a sitting president of a university is doing an adequate job. Mm-hmm. You know, th- none of these things would be an issue. But here we are, 20 years into my career, and we still got these questions, and it sucks. Mm. All right. No, I agree with you. I mean, there's definitely also a part of me that thinks to myself, when I think of the quote-unquote academy, it is built on a bed of elitism, sexism. Um, You know, it is designed to be a system that keeps people out and keeps things like knowledge precious and 
canonized. Um, we, you know, we have colonial root, roots, right? right? The academy has colonial roots, and it's something that in the last five hundred years we have never changed, right? Like we we have fixed bits and pieces here and there. We have put band aids over wounds, and we have tried to carve out new holes where people can sit, but we have never done the work of fundamentally flipping things on its head and saying we can't do this anymore. So until we do that, until we break the entire system down and rebuild it from scratch, are we ever going to be in a place where we can truly not be coming from colonized roots, right? Are we ever going to be able to be at a point where we can actually achieve equity in education? Mm, good question. No answer. <laughs> that's fair. And I think that, I mean, and that, that's something that we struggle with, right? Right. That's something we struggle with. All right. So I'm going to read a statement. In her introduction to Making Face, Making Souls, Gloria Anzadula, I probably didn't say that right. Anzandula. Anzandula states the following. If we have been gagged and dispowered by theories, we can also be loosened and empowered by theories. Can you provide us with your interpretation of this statement and then relate it to your scholarship? So when I think about that statement, I'm thinking about the ways in which early um, theorists, we think about, you know, um, folks who were doing philosophy that we had to read, like, um, folks who were doing humanist work like um, uh, Johann Goethe out of Germany and even thinking about theoretical um, theologists like Martin Luther and everything was sort of Eurocentric, right? And it was designed to sort of center their identities, which meant it left out a whole bunch of other people with identities that were different from theirs. Um. And people even used theories that were constructed, you know, based on, you know, racist ideas and that sort of thing to be able to support their racist actions. Mm -hmm. The good news is that a handful of us learned how to build theory based on empirical work, based on experiences, etc., and we're able to either, A, unpack certain kinds of theories in ways that were meaningful to more people, if not all people, or to create their own theories. So when I think about that statement, I think about the fact that while it, it really makes me think about something that I, that I often tell people. You can use your powers for good or for evil. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Theory is the superpower, right? <clears throat> and while it started out a thousand years ago as a power for good, somewhere along the way, somebody started using theory as a power for evil and that, and then finally came back around to the fact that people who have been marginalized as a result of people using their power or their theories for evil, making those theories a power for good. Mm-hmm. In relation to your scholarship? My scholarship is is sort of a, an example of that. So um, my scholarship hinges heavily on critical race 
feminism, which is an outgrowth of critical race theory, which is built in part on critical theory, which talks about power, oppression, um, and conflict. Critical theory comes out of people's experiences in Europe, primarily Jewish people's experiences in Europe, um, seeing the oppression sort of coming on slowly through policies because of the ways in which people in power were thinking about other people and how things operate. Um, And so, and then those folks were leaning on other theories that where they interpreted those theories to mean men in power or white men and so forth and so on. Um, And so typically in my work, I'm finding myself using my theory as a way to center the voices and experiences of black women, particularly, but women, women of color in general, um, using theory as my superpower for good. Good. That's awesome. All right. right, And here's my last question for you. This is your 20th year in the Academy. Is there a class, experience, or some defining moment that you can think of that solidified your commitment to fighting the good fight or made it so that you no longer questioned your ability to teach in the academy? <laughs> I would say there were probably multiple moments. Um, one of the things that you'll find when you go to my office, there are two photographs. Um, one of the very first class that I taught as an assistant professor and one of the very first class of doctoral students that I finished. And both of those for me were defining moments in relationship to my identity as an academic professional to to actually not just deliver curriculum, but to do, to but to deliver curriculum to a group of people for whom this would be a defining moment for them. So for me, my defining moments are predicated on um, engaging in experiences that are defining moments for other people. So in the case of my first group of undergraduate students, All of them were first-generation college students except for one. And the one that wasn't um, had a parent and a grandparent who had finished college and became educators. Um, And they all had their own stories of hardships and challenges just to be in my class, not just to be in college in general, but just to be in my class. You know, I had one student who um, had a son when he was a junior in high school. And he and his girlfriend were in college. Um, And his parents had just sort of cut themselves off from him. Mm. Basically saying, well, because essentially in their mind, Once he had the child, he was supposed to quit school, get a job, and take care of his family. Mm -hmm. But he decided in order to best care for his child, he should go to college Mm -hmm. and earn a degree and become a teacher. 
So he really didn't have a relationship with his family anymore. Mm-hmm. And when he came to my class on the first day, at the end of that class session, he asked me, he said, Dr. Barry, is it okay if sometimes I have to bring my son to class with me? Because I know that, you know, his, his girlfriend's grandmother would keep them periodically, but their class schedules didn't match up exactly because they had two different majors. And so there would be times when, you know, one of the two of them would have to bring their son to class. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily caring about whatever the rule was. I learned later that the rule was you can't bring the kids to the classroom because it's an insurance liability situation, right? But I didn't even ask, you know, most people would be like, well, let me ask my department chair. Let me ask my dean. I didn't ask anybody. I was like, look, you can bring your son, but please understand that when he enters my classroom, he's mine. <laughs> so you need to make sure that if he misbehaves, he's ready to deal with me. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, okay. So he was smart enough that on the few occasions that he brought his son to class, mm-hmm. he put him in the back of the room. By this time, I want to say his son was like, three going on four years old. He gave him a coloring book, some crayons, a little mm-hmm. quiet toy he could play with. And he would sit back there. And because he would see everybody else taking notes, he opened his book, start write, looking like he was writing because that's what he saw everybody else mm-hmm. doing. And he was quiet the whole time because everybody else was quiet until they raised their hand. And it was funny because one day, I think this was like maybe the third or fourth time he had come to class, people were asking questions, and he raised his hand. So I called on him. And he says to me, so, does everybody like this color? And he holds up his book. (laughs) Uh. And we said yes, and he said okay, and he went back to writing again. (laughs) And, the, and to see that young man graduate and finish school, it was like, yeah, I was part of that. His defining moment was my defining moment. All of those students in that class graduated and went on and got teaching jobs. Mm-hmm. Same thing with my doctoral students. That picture of those groups of students I had four students whose dissertations I supervised of that class. They all graduated. They all got jobs. And for me, the defining moment was being able to hood each and every one of those students Mm -hmm. and to know that what was pivotal in that moment for them became my moment. They allowed me to share in that moment. Mm -hmm. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. That's it awesome. Is. So as with the end of almost every podcast, feel free to let people know what you have going on, any books, any, whatever you got. This, this is your moment. This is my geeky moment. Yes, yes. <laughs> all right. So first of all, um, I just want to say first thanks to, to Chris and Aaron for inviting me to participate in this podcast. Um, this was fun. I threw this again. Yeah. I, I'm, I might need to replicate this experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and I think it's really cool that this is something that 
students can listen to to and, and really engage in the academic experience from a very different perspective. So kudos to the both of you for engaging in this um, kind of activity and, and providing this kind of experience to all kinds of folks, really, because it might not be just San Jose students who listen to this. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, things I got going on right now. So um, I have a book. I just signed a new book contract that I'm doing with two of my colleagues, um, Latanya Skiffer from CSU Dominguez Hills and Marilyn Easter, who's here at mm. San Jose State. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just got a contract for our new book. And that book, the manuscript is due to be submitted in August. Mm. And the book should come out by October. So I'm super excited about that. Um, I am doing two presentations at the American at the annual meeting of the American Educational Research Association in April. Mm. Um, that's a big one, right? Yeah, that's the big one. That's it will be one. in San Francisco this year. Yeah. Woo! That's awesome. So I'm doing a pre-conference section, a session on intersectionality with a scholar friend of mine, um, Min Yu from Wayne State University. Um, so folks who apply, because this is uh, Division B, which is curriculum studies, this is an opportunity for uh, folks who want to know more about intersectionality and how to integrate it into their work. So prior to the official start of the conference, um, we're doing this pre-conference session. Um, and speaking about this whole notion of mentorship, I am, uh, one of the mentors for young scholar, Emmanuel Watkins, who's a doctoral student at the university of Alabama. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he and I are doing a presentation at AERA, a paper presentation on, um, critical race theology. So he is actually, um, doing some work that sort of melds together, uh, liberation theology and critical race theory um, in, in the context of higher education, right? And and particularly in relationship to mentoring undergraduate students. Cool. Um, so, and using it as both a pedagogical and instructional method uh, for, for such mentorship. So he and I are doing that presentation. So I'm super excited about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's probably two, the two biggest things that are coming up. So stay tuned. Nice. You get your people to correct race, but don't you? You throw that book at them and say, hey, look, here's correct race theory. Do what you want with it. Hey, it's not like I wrote it, you know, but at the same time, you know, if Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk are listening to this podcast, I, I could get a piece of those royalties because all my <laughs> students read the book, you know. <laughs> so, hey. But it's a it's a very solid primer to get people introduced to it. Mm-hmm. There are lots of more in depth texts that from a variety of voices who are key scholars in the field of critical race theory. Um, but it's a great way to introduce uh, the concept to folks at the undergraduate, masters, and doctoral level. And mm-hmm. some people take to it like fish to water. Mm-hmm. Good. <laughs> well. This has been the Men Creating Change podcast, episode six. Whatever, we, we ain't keep track of them up. <laughs> I'll make this joke every podcast, by the way. You don't get, you don't get used to it. <laughs> um, my name is Aaron, and I'm Chris. 
Oh. <laughs> and I'm Dr. Barry. And we appreciate you listening. Stay safe. And we look forward to speaking with you all next time.